people are like, oh, but do you love it? And it's like, well, no, it's work, people. You know, it's, it's fundamentally work and it's work every day and you have zero ability to control anything. All you can do is actually just manage the risks and mitigate them as best as you can. This is The Producers. I'm Danny Vallant. How would you go farming for a year to end up with 200 grams of product? And that's a good year. That's life for saffron farmer Gamilla McCreary. As well as pernickety saffron, Gamilla also grows olives on her small farm in Victoria's high country. She's always been connected to the land and especially this part of northeastern Victoria. But Gamilla trained as an engineer and worked in Melbourne before buying her 12 acre block. Slowly and steadily, she's built an agribusiness around her two boutique crops and has found that the problem-solving aspects of engineering have been a boon in her new life as a farmer. So I'm Gamilla McCrory and I grow olives and saffron up here in the Victorian high country. have been doing it for about 13 years now and they're all wild fermented olives, so just water, salt and a minimum of 18 months fermentation and we produce both saffron threads and the saffron corms. The Victorian high country is a gorgeous part of the world. We're at about 600 metres elevation. The top of my block's at like 610 and the bottom of the block's at about 570, so we're on a pretty consistent slope. Um, It's a little rectangle that was divided out in 1856, so it's 100 metres wide and 500 metres long. I've got 600 olive trees right up the top of the hill and when you're standing in the olive grove, you can see over to Mount Buller, around Mount Buffalo, and we're just off the edge of the escarpment. So we get all these hill thermals. So all the eagles, wedgetail eagles, use my place as their little elevator up. So you can be in the olive grove watching your wedgies go round and round and round, up and up they go. Um, so it's a gorgeous part of the country. And, you know, it's generally blue skies, sunshine and gorgeous most days of the year. When she was a teenager, Gamilla and her mum travelled from orchard to orchard picking fruit. Though she went into a different industry, Gamilla wasn't hard to talk into buying a piece of productive land. What exactly to do with it was the next puzzle, and how to make the farm self-sufficient has been a long, careful journey. So I'm an engineer by trade, um, but grew up mum's a gardener. We've had fruit horticulturalists in the family for a number of generations, and I spent all of my teenage years um, itinerant working in the fruit picking, vine, vineyard um, scene in sort of southeast corner of Australia. And then in 2007, so as part of the GFC, I was, uh, what, 22 or whatever, mum was like, you'll see another two recessions in your lifetime, you should buy country property, which is slightly hilarious as we come out of COVID and country prices having, you know, skyrocketed by like doubles and silly figures like that. It's never good when you get proven, mum gets proven right. Um, and so spent a number of years um, trooping around country places and this was a deceased estate that one got sore in the weekly times on the Wednesday, came up and looked at it on the Saturday and the auction was the following Wednesday night. And I'd just broken up with my first serious boyfriend, so I didn't really care and didn't really have any main reason for being in Melbourne on weekends anymore. So I went, yeah, sure, I'll buy it. Okay, problem solved. I stopped having to get dragged around on Saturday mornings. Um, so the piece of land got bought with no specific intent, um, but we spent four hours walking around it, looking at it, feeling it, 
and concluding that it was a very good part, place to grow grow stuff. And then once I had it, it became, okay, well, what does one grow? Don't want to do – needs. it's only 12 acres, so 100 wide and 500 long. So it needs to be niche, high-value products. I can't be, you know, growing – Brahmin bulls or something like that. Um, and so table olives rather than oil olives because you need a lot less trees for table olives. Um, and then, you know, saffron was just a, well, why not have a have a play and explore? Uh, so as an engineer, you know, you go, there's not a lot of um, overlap between farming and engineering, but at the end of the day, engineering's just being a problem solver. Um, and it solves, you know, problems for people is fundamentally what engineering does. And so there's a lot of that thinking that overlaps into farming around how do you manage your risk, how do you solve your problems, how do you achieve what you're trying to do with the equipment that you've got without having to buy more equipment. Um, so it was a useful base degree really, even if it does seem rather random. So I spent 10 years um, working out of Melbourne and commuting up the Hume on the weekends to establish the farm. Um, so the problem with horticultural tree crops is the lead time from planting to getting food. So I planted the olive trees over sort of three years because I was young and money was tight and those sorts of things. So you can't go throwing money in. You've got time on your side when you're young. Um, and then it takes 10 years for an olive tree to start producing its full commercial quantity. And then when you're then talking about the fermentation process of the minimum amount of time for a Kalamata is about 15 to 18 months. Some varieties take three years. You then need to put three years on top of that so you don't really end up with a farm that's producing any money or any viable money for sort of at least, you know, 10 plus years. So I did that Hume commute for 10 years and then in October 2019 threw in the work towel and went full-time farming. Um, which was an interesting time to do it. In lots of ways, having COVID as my first couple of years was really useful because it meant to say at the time I still only had sort of like two tonnes of olives in the shed because, you know, that's all that had been getting harvested and that was ready. And so it allowed me to have stock, go to all the Melbourne farmers markets that were still operating but not have food service or other businesses coming to me saying, oh, can we have some olives and me having a young, immature business model of, oh, um, yeah, well, they're not quite ready or oh, maybe, you know. So like I'd been approached by the Melbourne Arts Centre about four years ago um, for olives when I really shouldn't have given them any olives. Like they weren't ready, they weren't, but, you know, when, you know, the Melbourne Arts Centre comes to you and says, oh, we want to stock your olives in, our, you know, our three bars, you'll have to go, oh, okay, sure. Um, so for me, having COVID and not having any of those demands or pressures was really useful because um, it allowed me to get stock backpiled into the shed um, with enough age and enough flavour um, that now that as we come out of COVID, I've actually got enough stock to sell um, and enough maturity in my business confidence, for want of a better word, to say, yes, no, sorry, you can't, but sure, come back in another 18 months and we can have a conversation. Um, so, no, it's been going um, really well. It's self-sufficient. This year I need to look at employing people outside of Just Harvest. There's too much work to do for just me. Um, and mum's like trying to practice retiring or something, which is a bit of an outrage, but that's okay. Um, so, yeah, it, it is what it is. And between the both the farm components of like the saffron bulbs as well as the food components of 
olives and I do a bunch of value adds. So I do pickled cherries and pickled blueberries and, as I said, bergamot saffron curd. So all of those products fill in niches um, and flesh the business out really nicely. With two crops on different cycles, Gamilla's seasonal rhythms are subject to periods of intense busyness, a short but welcome period of rest, and of course, more than half an eye on the weather. So this is um, conversation happening in January and the olives have just finished flower and fruit set because everything's about six weeks late at the moment. So normally our olives would um, flower in late October, November, that then go into fruit set and harvest for us starts with our large green Spanish varieties on about the 1st of April and goes for eight weeks with our last variety being our calamatas and we're always juggling ripeness levels and frost levels to get the calamatas off before that first week of frost at the end of May or the start of June. Um, and then they get go into pruning land and winter dormancy land and all those sorts of things and then the saffron um, is just in the moment getting lifted and divided. So saffron's a bulb or a corm and they replicate. So every four years we need to lift them up and divide them. Um, and so we're doing that at the moment so we can have a good look at them and divide them out into their different size quantities and put them back in the ground. And so they all need to be back in the ground by February. And then we should see little green tips, give or take, depending on the weather, in late March, early April. And then they flower for about four weeks from about the third week of April into May. So basically April and May is our chaotic time of the year. Um, And then once they're finished, they grow for the rest of the season then die down in um, late spring. And then throughout all of that, there's all of the olive ferments to maintain. So kind of like wine fermentation, you need to do your barrel top-ups and check them and make sure they're all going in the direction that they want. Um, and the warmer it is, the more maintenance and support they need, and the colder it is, the less. So August is a lovely time of the year. I actually get to go on holiday because it's too cold for anything to be happening. Saffron is a tricky plant to grow, and Gamilla still sees lots of opportunities for education to help consumers understand how best to use it. Put simply, saffron makes the yum factor. I was a foolish 24-year-old when I bought this place and had done a little bit of reading and came home in December and went, oh, I've bought 100 saffron corms, at which point mum was like, but why? Um, And I spent the last 13 years trying to understand it both from a growing and farming perspective as well as a culinary perspective. Um, And so it's a very finicky plant to get it to grow and be happy and year on year and get it to flower every year. Um, And it's really weather dependent and soil dependent and all of those sorts of things. There's a bunch of tips and tricks that I've kind of um, grasped and learnt as one's gone along. But you actually have no idea what your corms look like until you're starting, you're on your hands and knees starting to dig them up, which we started two weeks ago and everything was looking really, really good. There's been very little disease, even though it's been as wet as it has. And then from a culinary perspective, I don't think I'd ever use saffron before I started growing it because we're plant people. So we just come at things from the plant perspective. And um, it, I, like everybody else, thought that it made stuff yellow and that was, couldn't understand what the gist of that was and then spent a number of years using it on rice and potatoes, not understanding that either. But now what I've learned is that saffron makes the yum factor is the easiest way to describe it. It makes things delicious. It makes people go, oh, can I have some more? 
So it actually works as a flavor enhancer. So like salt, you don't want to taste it, um, but its absence will just leave your dish a little bit flat. So yesterday was my birthday and I had a bunch of people over and I do a bergamot and saffron curd because I've got access to a local grower up the valley from me who grows fresh bergamots, which is fantastic. And so I did this most outrageous, lavish kind of tiramisu concept but with a bergamot and saffron curd in the middle of it instead. So coffee, bergamot, saffron, chocolate, it was outrageous and delicious and it definitely had the yum factor. So that's what saffron does. Saffron is a premium spice bound up in romance and legend but it's often not well understood. Camilla explains what a saffron plant actually is and how the spice strands are harvested and dried. So saffron is a bulb, so it grows underneath the ground and then um, emerges in autumn with little purple flowers. So these purple flowers are about, uh, we'll do metric rather than imperial, sort of like um, three centimetres big at maximum. And inside that purple lilac flower is three little red stigmas, which is the girl part of the flower. And that's actually the saffron spice. So you go out and you need to pick your flowers. During our peak flush, we pick twice a day. So we pick it about 9.30 and we pick it about 3 o'clock. And that means to say we're getting the flowers at their optimum level of um, openness. And they flower. So you pick your paddock completely clear of flowers. And then the next morning, there'll be flowers again. So they're growing at that kind of rate. And then we bring them up to the processing shed and we need to peel the flowers open, pull the stigmas out and then dry them. So it's about 150,000 flowers for a kilo of saffron. So once they've been picked, the strands are then dried to about 10% of moisture content. So you'll lose an awful lot of weight in that drying process um, and it's very, very tedious. Um, but it looks pretty, but it's it's tedious. <laughs> so last season we is our biggest to date, and we probably got about bit, about two hundred grams, maybe just a bit over. <laughs> the year before was sixty grams. So God help me, next year if we have the same level of multiplication, we'll be kind of close to the kilo. Growing is one thing, harvesting is another, but none of it means much unless the product gets into customers' hands and mouths. How did Gamilla hit the market? So farmers markets was the main initial avenue. Um, and the reason why farmers markets are good for lots of reasons is you get instant feedback on your product. Um, so, you know, you get to actually watch people's facial expressions and eyes and that tells you an awful lot about how they rate your product, regardless of what they then say about it. Um, and so... When I started, I've been going to markets now for probably six years, I think. And I used to just, you know, do like two a month. Um, and because there was all my, there was two main table of businesses up here as well, I couldn't get up into the regional market. So I was doing all Melbourne markets, which was fine because I still lived out of Melbourne Monday to Friday. Um, and then... As lined up with COVID, all of those guys retired, which was fantastic. So now I'm the main table olive producer up here with no competition, which is a lovely position to be in. Um, and still doing a fair bit of markets, but now mostly regional rather than Melbourne, because if you don't need to travel, why not? Um, and really, and the other good thing about markets is it gets the product in people's mouths. They get to taste it. So then when they see it on a shelf or on a menu somewhere else, they're like, oh, yeah, that was really good. Um, and that's, you know, the good thing with farmer's markets. 
Now I'm kind of at a lovely situation where people, stockists, whether they be um, restaurants or um, shops are reaching out to me at sort of a lovely consistent rate that's kind of lining up with my escalation so I don't need to go and hassle people, which is good. Um, and one of the main Melbourne um, food restaurant uh, distributors, if you want to call them that, you know, works with a whole bunch of restaurants to get them the best produce possible. It's just taken on um, both the saffron and the saffron extract. So hopefully we'll start seeing a bit more of that in Melbourne restaurants in the next 12 months and I'll go down and do some talkings and do some saffron masterclasses because I didn't realise how poorly saffron was understood by the trade when I started. Um, so there's a fair bit of education work to happen in that space still. Saffron is expensive and Australian saffron is more expensive than the Iranian product that dominates the market. Part of Gamilla's project is to explain where the value lies and educate cooks how best to use it. So I wholesale into food service at $160 a gram and retails at $240 and those prices sound outrageous in comparison to the Iranian prices. Iran produces most of the world's saffron. Um, they can produce it at the price they can for several reasons. Land cost, labour cost. There's a fair bit of government subsidies to keep people, kids especially, on farm, not growing opiates and not joining Taliban. Um, but my take around saffron or my saffron specifically is it's a different product. Um, you're using six strands per litre of product. So, you know, I do like a dulce de leche caramel um, that's, you know, cooked for 48 hours with saffron in it and you're using six strands per litre because you don't want to taste saffron. It's actually medicinal and iodine -y. For some seafood dishes, that's appropriate, but really you want to use it like salt where it just extends the flavour in your palate, fills your whole mouth really beautifully and it pulls things in balance. So it pulls your, your highs down a little bit and all you have is this really perfectly balanced um, food experience. So, and then we have a saffron extract which saves people needing to grind and soak. My pet peeve is seeing whole saffron strands getting thrown into dishes on TV. Um, and when I see good well-known chefs that have a lot of um, uh, consumer pull or reputation just like throwing saffron strands in a dish. When you use them whole, saffron actually has like a little waxy coating on it. So it's quite impenetrable to a liquid until you break that open. So when you throw whole strands in, you're getting less than 5% release out of it. Um, they really need to be ground and soaked. And the Iranians, I've got some Iranian friends now because a mate's married one, and when you listen to how they use it, it does get ground up in a mortar and pestle and it's actually best to grind it with sugar. It grinds up better into a finer powder than with salt, um, but you can grind it with salt as well. They keep it in the fridge because when you keep it in the fridge at a lower temperature, it stops it oxidising so you keep better colour. Um, and, you know, it gets used in very, very small doses. So my price point is, well, if you're actually using it properly and you're using it for what's intended and you're getting full release out of it, paying $160 a gram as wholesale versus, you know, $19 a gram for Iranian and only getting 5%, you're actually at about the same price point. There are so many different aspects to Camilla McCrory's farming life. 
Which parts does she love and what tasks are the most tedious? Scraping the pot after making bergamot saffron curd is a pretty is pretty good highlight. Um, and one gets slightly overdosed on, like, curdy goodness. Um, saffron lifting is probably one of the more annoying things, um, and that's just because you're lifting, you know, thousands of corms and... Um, you're on your hands and knees and it's in January so you need to get out there at 6am otherwise it's too hot in the paddock too quickly Um, but like you know it's farming people are like oh but do you love it it's like well no it's work people you know it's it's fundamentally work and it's work every day and you have zero ability to control anything all you can do is actually just manage the risks and mitigate them as best as you can like, you know, the weather that we've had this, um, well, basically from June, July has been awfully wet, awfully cold, awfully dreary. There's another grove that I like to pick down at Yakandanda and their soil is so sad that it just held water and had water sitting on it for about six to eight weeks, at which point the olives are now really sad because they've lost all the oxygen in their roots. And so... When one sees that in comparison to the work that I've done on my soil here on my grove and how well it handled all of that excess rain and how well the trees handled it, it's more around satisfaction, around how I'm managing things is being successful and is helping to mitigate all of those risks that are outside of your control. So that's probably the satisfaction, you know. There's good and bad days. I hate going round and round on a tractor and a slasher, but you know, the grass is never stopping growing at this point in time. It's farming. It's work. It's a job. <laughs> I probably love watching people's facial expressions when they taste the end product, because um, everything gets put into finished product, um, and watching their eyes light up and they just go, oh, wow. Um, Then I know that I have achieved success, for want of a better word, you know, given people a little dose of warm happiness inside their heart. Camilla McCreary took only a week to clinch the deal on her patch of land in northeastern Victoria, but she's committed to a lifetime of perfecting the art and act of farming saffron and olives. Along the way, she hopes more cooks and eaters will come to understand the value and power of saffron, a spice that brings the yum to dishes both savoury and sweet. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Vallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.